Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests 4% of its after-tax profits in projects that benefit people, our communities and the planet. To find out more, go to bankost.com.au, where you bank every day makes a difference. Hi, I'm Jane Nethercote from Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. Dumbo Feather's Nathan Scalaro chatted recently to Peter Drew about making art that starts conversations. You might not know Peter, but you could have just stumbled across his work down an alley. He's the man behind the street art poster series Real Australians Say Welcome. Plastered across the country, they were a provocation to talk about how we treat asylum seekers. They became iconic almost immediately and then riffed on when the design files called for artists to create their own versions. His next series featured a photo of Monga Khan, found in the Australian National Archives. Peter put the word Aussie across it. With his turban and bold moustache, the poster challenged the concept of what a true blue Australian looks like. Peter now has a third and final instalment of the poster series, which is called Aboriginal Land, Real Australians Seek Welcome. It invites a chat about the relationship with Australia's original inhabitants. After all, many Australians are the original boat people. It's complicated. Anyway, chatting about visual things with an audio medium is a bit inefficient, so we suggest you check out Peter's Instagram while you listen to this podcast. It will all make a lot more sense. It's instagram.com forward slash peterdrewarts. That's one word. We loved hearing from Peter about the real work that it takes to launch an idea into orbit. And I thought the best place to start would be the inception point for Real Australians Say Welcome. Well, it, uh, it started in 2013. That's where sort of the design started. I was living in Glasgow for a year and that experience changed the way I thought about uh, identity, really, because when you're living overseas, you become the Australian guy and everyone sort of asks you yeah. whether you agree with, um, you know, your country's immigration policies. And during 2013, uh, the federal election was on and both major parties were promising to stop the boats. And that phrase, stop the boats, really struck me as absurd coming from a nation of immigrants. And so I came up with a design that said it was in the style of a sort of a 19th century uh, poster. And it said, Australia says, stop the boats to avoid Aboriginal genocide, stop Great Britain's illegal migration to Australia. And I had sort of a, a picture of a um, ship from the First Fleet, and I went down to London and, and stuck up a bunch of those 
without without thinking really, I just sort of thought, yeah, this is I'll just do this, and it felt more comfortable than any of the art I'd done up until then because I think. You know, as an artist, you're sort of encouraged to do stuff which is personal and your own sort of little quirky take on something, whereas this is about a big group of people and history and, and things which I sort of, um, it fit, it felt right straight away. And so I thought, wow, this is really um, perhaps what I should be doing. And then that led towards Real Australia and Say Welcome. I think there's an implied question mark at the end of every one of my posters. You know, do Real Australia and Say Welcome? It's just uh, sort of a question. And the fact that it's so, it's put so sort of uh, forcefully in that sort of uh, um, strong font and, and it sort of contradicts uh, the way uh, people often talk about, you know, you know, stop the boats, get out, if you don't like it, leave, all that sort of, um, all those slogans. Um, it's, it's obviously ironic and it should make people have a conversation, it, you know, and help people to sort of try to understand the world rather than just pushing them in one direction. Mm. That's what I hope anyway. Mm. So you were back in Australia by the time you created these posters? Uh, yeah, so uh, I got back shortly after the election um, and, yeah, started making more political work. I, I did two projects pretty quickly. Um, the first thing I did is uh, started getting in contact with uh, asylum seekers in and out of detention and I had an idea of, of uh, giving them uh, sketchbooks and saying, just sort of tell your story. And I collected up, I actually, I collected up lots of sketchbooks, but I met one guy in particular uh, called Ali from Afghanistan, and he just filled up two sketchbooks, just told his whole story from uh, when his father was killed until sort of uh, setting up in Australia. And so I then turned those into large uh, posters. And, and that's, I don't, I'm quite sure no one here has heard of that project, although I you know, put a lot of work into it. But because it was so uh, nuanced and detailed, it didn't, didn't have the punch of just four words repeated over and over and over. So after that project, I thought, right, I'm going to simplify it down to something very uh, succinct. And I think you're very conscious of language is one thing that I really observed in you. And, and Well, yeah, if you're going to use four words, you've got to make sure that there's a twist in there, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, yeah. And if, if the work's going to be on the street, you've got, you've got seconds to grab people's attention and make them go, hmm, like, and... Do you remember how you felt when, when you got your first poster? Was it, did it feel like it had power for you? Or? I mean, I, I saw, I hoped, obviously, um, but I couldn't have uh, predicted the way it took off, took off because, I mean, one of the things about it is that it's very plain like the, the text is you know very plain and so yeah the way that other creatives saw what I was doing with the words and and embellished it and and you know made it beautiful was amazing I mean that was a incredible you know incredibly, incredibly fun thing for me to watch other people sort of take ownership of it and mm. you know give it a life. Mm. That's the other thing I've noticed about the campaign is that it doesn't feel like it's it's just yours I feel like everyone feels ownership over this project. I think that's probably part of it being street art. And yeah, absolutely. And, and the feeling that uh, I'm sure so many people have seen it, have got no idea who put it, put it up, they've yeah. seen it in other places, and that's what sort of um, gives it life. Sometimes I think about the analogy of a, of a satellite. Communication, this is going to sound ridiculous for a few minutes, but you'll get it in the end. Yeah. Um, like a communication satellite is you know, an incredible amount of technology. It's an amazing thing, costs you know, millions and millions of dollars. But if it's sitting on the ground, it's still not doing anything. It's still, like, you can come up with a really cool idea, but unless you're willing to put in all the effort to get it right up into orbit where it can do its job, then it's nothing. You know, it's just a, you know, a cool idea. 
And so, yeah, traveling around and sticking out 1,000 posters is like just getting it up there. Um, but once you've done that, it's sort of, it's there for a while. So. Was that always part of the idea that you would go out and yeah, stick the posters up and yeah. rally people to kind of get on board? Because, I mean, other, other artists have done that before. Uh, like Shepard Ferry is, is the big one sort of for doing his whole Obey campaign. And this shows what one person can, can sort of can create an icon out of, in his case, nothing. Like it was just a joke and then it sort of turned into a brand and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, I thought, you know, if, here's something I really believe in. Um, why not uh, pretty much put a year aside and go, this is what I'm going to do. And we'll see what happens. You know, we'll see if it sort of, uh, if it clicks. You spent four months like putting the... Dedicated traveling, yeah. yeah um, and sort of going back to Adelaide each time because you can't physically carry that many posters, but I mean... Um, and describe what it's like, so you go, you go into a, a town, I, I'm really yeah. curious about this process. You Depends like a, where it is. Are you kind of going at night time, putting the bandana on, like, <laughs> no, rolling no, no, no. out the back of a... What does it look so, like? Well, it's, uh, I stay in hostels because you need to cook a lot of paste, like it's all flour. <laughs> and ah, so, so you, yeah, how do you put them up? Is it the water? Yeah, flour, it's flour and water, yeah, so you have okay. to, yeah. twice a day, at the stove, cooking up the pace, and the people in the hostel are going, why is he making that much porridge? <laughs> and so, yeah, then I, I go out with an orange vest and sort of, and it look like I'm just doing my job. And, and if someone comes up to me like, and goes, this is my building, get out of here, then, then I know that, you know, I should probably leave. But oh, it's, so you try to blend in with the workers? Of yeah, because, I mean, in my so mind, I'm, you know, I'm just doing my job. And <laughs> I am. Um, and yeah, that's the way I do it. And in a place like Melbourne, that completely works because there are posters and graffiti yeah. everywhere. Um, but when you're in Darwin, um, <laughs> things, are, things can be different. And um, yeah, I mean, every, every city I will have at least one confrontation, but it's never sort of, it's usually just someone who's angry and wants to blow off a bit of steam. Sometimes you can have a dialogue which is constructive, but not always. Yeah, well, I'm curious about that. What parts of Australia did you find? Obviously, say Darwin, are country towns more welcoming, open to the ideas? Is there more well, confrontation? I'm mostly in the cities. Like I, I, uh, in, okay. um, in the Northern Territory and Queensland, I got out to, like in Queensland, I went out to Ipswich and uh, a little bit further out as well. It wasn't too bad. I mean, because uh, I think by the time people know what's happening, they, I'm gone. So... <laughs> <laughs> Ninja style, yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, the very first day of the Real Australian Say Welcome campaign, I went out to um, the western suburbs of Sydney because there were areas there that have uh, lots of immigrants, and I thought, yeah, I'll start out there. Why not? And it was in, on the very first morning, I had a guy uh, chasing me down the street, um, yeah, just yelling at me, yeah, go back you, and uh, take those posters down. And it definitely wasn't, it wasn't, he, he wasn't someone who hated posters. He, he hated my posters. Um, <laughs> And, but I sort of, I, I just, I was running away from him because he was trying to, he was trying to hit me, but he was a, um, <laughs> but the, I, was, I was sort of laughing because it was absurd and there were other people around laughing and I just thought, this is, this is really what we're de dealing with. It's like, it's just some irate person um, and for some reason those people have, uh, you know, have a political voice and there are so many people in the middle who uh, are just sort of silent, I think, in a lot of ways. So. Well, this is the great thing about this work, is that you have the opportunity to have a conversation with the people who are confronted by what you're doing. I don't know if you do take that opportunity, but because you're no, on the streets, you could yeah. actually engage with these people and yeah, but, well, explore I did, where that's coming from. I did try speaking to that guy, but it sort of quickly sort of devolved. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but have you had encounters like that where you've been able to talk? Yeah, and like, because, I mean, I, I'm not sort of intolerant towards their fear, you know? I think people are allowed to be afraid, you know? It's a natural thing when you're confronted with something that you don't recognise. Um, but it's then how you re respond to that fear that really uh, defines you and that defines all of us. And, and what have you learned about where these vulnerabilities, these fears are coming from? Is um, well, Islam is the biggest thing. I mean, people are just sort of afraid of that. Um, that's, uh, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, it's uh, a really common one is someone will say, oh, who's this guy? And they can tell they're sort of a little bit sort of uh, affronted by it. And I say, well, this is Monga Khan, and he lived here 100 years ago. He had to have this photo taken uh, for his uh, application for his exemption to the wide Australia policy. He lived here his whole life. He died here. And... Um, yeah, so I think that he's as Aussie as any of us. And that's why I picked that image, because that's sort of, it shows that uh, there's a history of Muslims in this country that goes back a long time. I mean, uh, they visited here for a lot longer, but actually living here, uh, you know, longer, as long as my ancestors, so... Yeah. yeah, I love this campaign. For those of you who don't know, so th these historic figures All right. kind of So to some people here don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So yeah, I, I found the photograph in the Australian National Archive in Melbourne. Um, he lived in Victoria. He was a, uh, a hawker in Victoria, and in Victoria, hawkers used horses. Uh, yeah, it's just funny to think that, um, yeah, Australia back then would have looked not... Yeah, certainly not as multicultural as it does now, but it, uh, it wasn't quite as completely white as you yeah. might assume. So. And they bypassed the white Australia policy because right. they were needed. These were jobs that were needed. They were, they were here. Most of them were here already. Oh. Um, and then they wanted to go back, in his case, go back to India, uh, visit family, um, and then come back to Australia without fear of getting sort of... Um, getting uh, kept out of where his livelihood and his whole life was. So. Yeah. And then the second part of this campaign is the book that you've just uh, released quite recently, right? Yeah. So um, we raised twice as much money as what we needed, was what I needed to sort of um, put up the posters. So I, I thought, I was thinking back at the Real Australian Say Welcome project and how that took off uh, by people sort of piling on creatively. And I thought, how can you do that with a character? Um, and then I thought of the idea of fan fiction and historic fiction. And so I thought, right, well, uh, I commissioned an editor and said, I want you to find writers and poets who can imagine the life of Monga Khan as a folk hero. And so it's really an exercise in uh, myth-making, like, because we know a little bit about his life, but there's something special about mythology as opposed to history, because history is uh, the facts and when you hear a historic story, you're not really inclined to really empathise and identify with and put yourself in that story. But when you're hearing you know, the story of uh, Waltzing Matilda, we're just intuitively um, encouraged to imagine us as that person. So that's something special that artists, uh, writers and poets can do. And that's why you know, mythology is an important thing. Yeah. So. Because to me, this campaign, it felt like you were rewriting history or telling a, a perspective of history that we hadn't heard as Australians before. We have these classic narratives, right, of the larrikinism and the mateship and wars yeah. that we hear through high school. Yeah. And this was something quite special and dynamic. It kind of yeah. sizzled, you know? Well, I mean, the, the thing is about, the, about Australian mythology is the, uh, the rebelliousness, uh, sort of uh, irreverence towards authority. And what better authority to be, you know, rebellious towards than the white Australia policy, yeah. you know? Um, 
it's got to be an act of imagination because we can say we can tell the facts we can say this was a diverse place but until people are really sort of using their imaginations to sort of put themselves in those shoes it's sort of there's always going to be this divide yeah. it's sort of it's it, you sort of got to grant people permission to imagine what it was like to be uh, someone completely different so you mentioned rebellious acts and I, I did want to ask you if you were a rebel <laughs> growing up well um that's different to my family. I sort of grew up in a, a moderately conservative household. I think that sort of allowed me to have some sort of understanding of what that, that frame of mind is like. Um, a certain amount of sympathy, or at least sort of um, know enough about it to sort of figure out how to coerce those people into seeing the world differently. I think I get that side of myself from my dad. He was a teacher, but um, he was into scuba diving and uh, salvage. Like he sort of would salvage shipwrecks and do archaeology and the history as well. Like I just grew up around marine archaeology, always old ships uh, and just always history. And so when that came into my art, it would just sort of, it just felt very natural. But I sort of, it was something that I sort of kept away, I think, because, you know, you, you go to art school and stuff and you, you sort of get encouraged to do things the way they're meant to be. Um, and then sometimes when you just sort of let things happen, you go, oh, this is who I am. So, yeah. <laughs> is that, is that what, how, where this kind of path is taking? You're finding yourself, getting, getting to know yourself more and more through this work that you do? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, just to letting go of sort of uh, silly assumptions I had before about what, um, what it meant to be an artist, I think. Sort of letting the politics in a little bit as well. I mean, that sort of, um, yeah, that's a big part of it. Yeah. I wanted to talk a bit more about national identity and, and whether we even need a sense of nationalism in this country. I think these posters are really speaking to um, what well, I mean. It, the fact that you have the word Aussie, which is such a kind of colloquial, colloquial mm. exclusive term that we use, and we really hold on to that um, as Australians and we wear that badge. I, I wonder if we even need to kind of continue this. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I mean, because the notion of being progressive, there's a certain amount of hubris in, in declaring yourself to be a progressive because it, it suggests that your, your agenda is the literal interpretation of progress itself. And so when you're sort of saying, oh, we need to tear down these structures, without those structures, you have got nothing. But what I don't like about that point of view is that it's, it's puritanical in a way. It's sort of this thing is, this structure is impure. In the past, it was used for this. Let's just, therefore, the whole thing is defunct. Um, and the, that is, that's a, it's a, in an odd way, it's a conservative point of view of being, we need to sort of purify it by, um, you know, nationalism. In, in the past, it's been used, and it still is. It's used for being a, sort of a structure which excludes people. Um, therefore, the, the response to that is not destroy nationalism. It's why not reform nationalism until we... Um, uh, you know, can figure out something that works entirely better. Do you have a sense of what that looks like? What a reformed nationalism yeah. is? Yeah. Well, I think what we have now is, is certainly what people envisaged uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, what we have now is immeasurably better than what we had in Monga Khan's day, say. Yeah. Um, and the fact of that is uh, only shows that by reforming institutions and our sense of national identity, you can uh, sort of reach better outcomes in a peaceful way but just the, the idea of just uh, throwing it out it only scares conservatives to such an extent that you you move further apart and don't necessarily make progress mm. real australians say welcome it appeals to people's strength 
it doesn't say be compassionate, it says be strong. Because you can't sort of, if someone's afraid of Muslims or whatever, you can't come along and say, look, you're afraid, be more compassionate. You can't sort of cure fear with compassion. You need to give people courage. That's, uh, that's the thing we haven't spoken about. Um, what really inspired that phrase was uh, something I found in the National Anthem. There's a line in there, uh, it's in the second verse of the Australian National Anthem, it says, for those who come from across the seas with boundless plans to share, with courage let us all combine yeah. to advance Australia fair. Yeah. And I thought, why with courage? And it's, it's interesting because that is, you know, we, we think of our national symbols and mythology as being kind of simplistic and stupid, but um, with courage, that is, that's an interesting insight because it says it takes courage for us to combine and overcome our fears. And that's, that's, I don't know, I think that's an important thing to remember and it sort of, it works better than just saying, you know, just be more compassionate. So, and especially if the person you're speaking to is like a naturally not so compassionate person. Yeah. You know? yeah. I found this great quote um, in an artist statement that you wrote. You said, I enjoy examining our collective identities and my aim is always to emphasize the connections that bind up rather than fractures and divides us. Um, and I just wondered, what are some of the connections that you've observed uh, in the work that you've done? I don't know. It's a funny thing that, you know, it, sometimes it feels like the world is, is, is falling apart. But when you go out on the street, everyone's just getting along and it's all fine. But um, without sounding a little bit too airy-fairy, yeah, is, is that yeah. it's a really, it's a, it's a spiritual connection in a lot of ways. And I think that's sort of um, what's one of the problems with the world is, is sort of, and it's a, so that it's a thing that's happened over centuries is that sort of disenchantment is that sort of loss of um, religious structures I'm not a religious person but religions tie people together and create a sense of brotherhood sisterhood sort of an overarching sense of family which ties an entire species together and you can look at the 20th century and say oh what a terrible century that was a lot of it was because of people were feeling incredibly disenchanted you know if you become uh, completely nihilistic and tear down structures then it's incredibly dangerous uh, because people um, make all kind of crazy decisions after that. So I, I don't know, I think it's that the fundamentally the thing which ties us together more than anything is a really is a spiritual, irrational feeling of just uh, brother and sisterhood. It's, yeah. is, uh, it's a difficult thing to communicate without sounding. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Sound, sounding but funny. I, what I also hear is that we have to work with the existing structures that are in place and the existing mentalities and perspectives that we have and then keep envisaging this new world order and have hope that you know, things could change. Absolutely. It's just there's a huge danger in just tearing things down just yeah. because they're a little bit they're problematic. You know? Yeah. Do you think you're going to continue to kind of push and expand our ideas and our sense of what it means to be Australian in your work? Is that something that you hope to continue to do? Well, yeah. This, this, the latest project I'm working on is about uh, Aboriginality and the way uh, we all relate to that. Um, because obviously real Australians say welcome uh, is about belonging, but who has the who has the right to belong here? I guess. Mm. Um, and so the the key phrase in the new slogan, uh, the new slogan is uh, Aboriginal land, and be arrow pointing towards the ground, and says real Australians seek welcome. And it's from the notion of uh, the Aboriginal language groups seeking welcome in each other's land. And and I and I thought, I mean, obviously. There were over 250 different language groups in Australia before uh, Europeans invaded. So 
that's multiculturalism in a way. I mean, that's almost a precedent to, mm. to the multiculturalism we have now. So I just thought that's an interesting way to sort of tie it together. And if you put those two posters next to each other, real Australians say welcome and real Australians seek welcome, there's an obvious contradiction in it sort of, and that, that sort of, uh, that riddle, that conundrum is actually really, really complicated. And it's sort of, I don't know, there's something worth embracing in that, you know, because we always were telling ourselves how simple this country is, how backward yeah. it is, but it's, it's complicated. Yeah. Like, it's really complicated. I love that because I was really struggling today to think, which one is it? Are we saying welcome? Are we seeking welcome? Like, but you're saying it's both and. Yeah, right? it's both. Absolutely. Like, it's, it's complex. It's not that simple. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it's difficult and it sort of, yeah, it comes back to having a bit of courage to, um, to explore those navigate things. Navigate between the two. Mm. And it also comes from Aboriginal people from these different language groups had to seek welcome into each other's land. Is that I mean, it, it's not a, it wasn't a universal law or anything like oh, okay. that, but I mean, it was, you know, when things were working well, that was, that was what people did. Yeah. Um, and so it just, it's, you know, if you've, if culture has survived in this uh, landmass for what, 60,000 years, there's got to be something for us to all learn from that, you yeah. know? I love what you say about the complexity of this situation that we're in. We're always trying to simplify. Um, yeah. And to sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, just... Uh, Sit with the discomfort of that, I think. Yeah, yeah, and in just acknowledge that it is complex and not sort of a, a you know, a simple backward uh, part of the world. It's, yeah. you know, as complex as anyone else's identity. Yeah. And so with this project, has the response been different or, or similar to previous ones? Um, well, I mean, with all my projects, I, I really aim to pull people into the middle and the only way you can do that is piss off people on the extremes of each mm -hmm. side. And so that's sort of, that's really what I, what I aim to do. Um, and yeah, you know, and again, it's, uh, it's worked out. So, um, <laughs> but um, I know this project is definitely different to the previous two, because the previous two, I sort of, uh, I made the poster and just went out there and, and stuck it up. And there's something sort of aggressive about doing that, I think. But with this one, it's going to be a much longer process of, uh, talking to the communities of all the, the major cities and obviously getting their blessing sort of tacitly or, or more sort of officially. And it's sort of the way of, rather than going through bureaucracy, um, I'm, I'd really like to speak to Aboriginal artists and, uh, and do it that way and find collaborations. So it's going to take the year, possibly a lot longer. Um, and then outside of that, there are, you know, all, all the other hundreds of, uh, of language groups and I'm sort of slowly making contact with people all over the places. And I don't know, it's one of those, sometimes as an artist, you go, yeah, that's a great idea. I can do that. And then you go, I will do that. And then, and then you know, two months later, you're into it and you're like, I can't do this. This is, this is too much stuff. But I was just um, thinking, when does life, I mean, when does personal life happen in between all of this? I mean, do you just... Yeah, well, my, my wife is a fashion designer. She has her own label. So we're, she's as crazy as I am. And so mm -hmm. we sort of, we've convinced ourselves that that is our life, just sort of like... You know, I'll help her out with her stuff and she helps me out with my stuff and that's how we... It's messy and complex and... Yeah, well, um, it works more or less, so, yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of life journey, I had another qu great quote here. You said, I don't necessarily think an extraordinary life is a happy life. Creating a story for yourself is something that makes sense to me because we know what a good story is. But each story has changes and transformations through it and that can be a painful process. 
I'd rather have that than something which is just vanilla all the way through. Um, and I'm really compelled by the idea that the, the, tra the transformations in our life, the turning points, the changes are quite often the most painful for us. Yeah, well, I think that whole idea of happiness is, I mean, you can, that, the only reason we talk about that is because you can sell happiness. You can't really sell, uh, it's harder to sell meaning. Um, and that's not really what people, happiness is, it's not what we want. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the meaning that you get from taking responsibility from the pain of life, really, and the transformations. If you really, like, you really think about it, everyone has that desire for transformation, to sort of become something that we don't even know what it is. Um, and that's a painful process always. And yeah, everyone has that. Um, I mean, it's figuring out when you get things wrong, admitting when you're wrong, uh, listening to the people's criticism. That's a big part of it, is sort of um, just taking it on the chin when you don't get it right. Because um, if you're too afraid of that, um, you, you just you steer away from things that are, that are difficult. We haven't talked about art so much, and I did want to hear a bit more from you about what art means to you, what art awakens in us. Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, yeah, I, perhaps we can talk about like, the difference between art and activism. I still don't think of myself as an activist, really, because I think an activist is somebody who no, uh, has an agenda, in a way. They, they see what the, the world should be, uh, or at least what the way they'd like it to change. Yeah and they are uh, creating activism in order to sort of propel it in that direction. And I don't see myself that way. I, s I still see it as art. But you're distinguishing art as a conversation that happens between the recipient of the artwork and yeah. you as the creator. It I mean, art fundamentally should ask a question, I think. Putting something out into the world, getting a response, and, and therefore learning from the world. It's a way of trying to make sense of the world. And that comes back to what I was saying about the more recent project, about how I me mean, knowing that it, at some point it's going to... It, it, it's not going to be entirely smooth sailing um, because you you sort of have to find where those boundaries are yeah and that's how you figure out what the world actually is because otherwise we just you just gleam a certain amount from people um, but with art you sort of I don't know it's a, it, I think it's a really interesting way of figuring out how the world works yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I struggle with is my attention when it comes to art um, being distracted all the time. I mean, in an art gallery, I've got my mobile phone there, and so you're coming yeah. in and out. And so I think, I wonder if you think about how you can kind of capture audiences' attention and, and whether having your art on the streets um, is, is a, allows you to kind of capture attention in a different way. Or, or well, it has to be a lot faster. Um, yeah. There's that, and um, but people, I think, have a certain a more ownership of things that they find on the street. Um, spontaneously rather than if you go into an art gallery when, at least whenever I go into an art gallery you sort of go all right are we, we're gonna see some art you know yeah. gonna be some yeah. confronting things <laughs> yeah. and you just and then things yeah, it's true. things try to confront you and you go yeah that was very <laughs> confronting <Yeah>. and <laughs> it's it that setting is not yeah it, it, it doesn't work so well as and it's it it's not even it's only a couple of hundred years old the idea of a public art oh. gallery um, art obviously has been with us for hundreds of thousands of years and so I try to, I don't know, I think that the context of you know an industry and that sort of assumption of things being avant-garde it's kind of a subculture in a way and all those that sort of uh, the philosophy which surrounds it uh, and I just think using public space which is a, an ancient forum, ancient uh, democratic forum um, people just sort of bump into things the same way they'd like find an apple on the tree. There's something brilliant about that. You go, ah, oh, and it's, there's no pretense. There's nothing sort of making the poster look like it's meant to be special. Um, 
And I just, I, I like that honesty of it. So yeah, that's what attracted me to street art and also sneaking around at night. <laughs> and I don't do so much of that anymore, but um, yeah. So good. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks tonight. for having me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again for the Dumbo Feather podcast. This episode was produced by Beck Fari, Maddie McFarlane and me, Jane Nethercote. The music you hear is by the wonderful Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. If you've got something to say, please review us on iTunes. We know it's what everybody says, but it really does help us to find new listeners. Or send us an email with feedback or suggestions to hello at dumbofeather.com. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide.